The Spirit is the one in the Godhead that the Father uses to draw you. He convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He awakened a dead heart so you could see the gospel. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. We've spent the past several days in chapter 14 looking at an army that will accompany the Lord at His return, as well as the messages of three angels. As we proceed in verses 14 through 20 in a message entitled, The Wrath of God on Earth, let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he gives a little recap of what we've already studied. I hope you understand that a day is coming when all the dreams and schemes that men have sold their souls for are going to turn to rust and mold and corruption. The only thing that will last is heaven, God's people, and the living God created also the angels that He made and created. But there is coming a time, not just of heaven, which we're going to study in great detail, because more detail is given about heaven in this book than any book in all of the Scripture. But we're also going to learn of some things that will precede heaven, and it's the eternal judgment of God. And here in the 14th chapter, the Apostle John is really giving us a sneak preview of things to come. The book of Revelation in many ways is found as the last book in our Bible, but it is indeed the conclusion to the Bible. And as you study it, it will certainly capture your attention, it will broaden your imagination, it will uh, deepen your understanding of heaven, but it will also sober you concerning the judgment that is going to come. The term revelation, apocalypsis, and so some of our English Bibles doesn't say the revelation, it says the apocalypse, and that's okay. It's just a direct transliteration, but the word apocalypsis, apocalypse, means an unveiling. And that's what the revelation is. It's an unveiling. But I find it rather ironic in that while this book is made to uncover and to unveil primarily the person of Christ, in many ways it's the most closed book and the most mysterious book to people, to God's people. And one of the reasons is because they do not understand the role that Israel will play at the end of time, that God is not done with the Jewish people, that as He used them to bring about the first coming, He will use them to bring about His second coming. But the second reason, and in many ways the primary reason, is because there's so much of the Old Testament woven like a beautiful mosaic all the way through this book. There are over 300 references to the Old Testament. Some would say six or 700, and I could say, well, here's a verse in this gospel, but it's repeated in these two, and you could count them as three. But there's basically 300 unique, specific references out of the 404 verses found in the Revelation that come or allude directly from the Old Testament. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, as the first century believer did, because for many, that's all they had. The New Testament was not written. Of course, by the time the Revelation is written in 95 AD, it's the capstone. It's the last book that God inspires. But if you were Jewish and you grew up or you were a Gentile convert, the only book you had growing up was the Old Testament Scriptures. 
And so never once does John say, well, the apostle uh, Isaiah said, or the uh, prophet Isaiah said, or the prophet Daniel said, or he never once does that. He just basically cites the Old Testament. And so it's important that we understand the Old Testament to understand the revelation. And of course, half the problem for the interpreter is that many interpret the book of Revelation differently than they do the Old Testament. The Old Testament is to be taken at face value, and unless something is said to be a symbol or an allegory, we are to interpret it in its historical, plain grammatical context. And that's how those in the early church interpreted the Revelation. Now, here we are in the 14th chapter. We want to begin in the 14th verse where we left off. So I hope you've brought a Bible. If you don't have one, you might want to come to meet the pastor this evening. Revelation 14, beginning now in verse 14. Then I looked... Behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now let's start by setting the broad context of our passage because any text without a context is a pretext. And if you ignore the context, it's very easy to come up with a false interpretation, not to mention you will miss the richness of what's being said. Yes, John 3.16 can be understood as a standalone verse, but you miss the richness of that verse if you don't know John 3 verses 14 and 15 that precede it. And then the verse just comes alive for you, and yet most people don't know those verses. So context is very, very important. And quite honestly, as a pastor, I get a little nervous when someone comes up to me and says, well, God told me. Because sometimes what God supposedly told them is not consistent with what God has revealed in the Bible. And sometimes I think Christians do this because they don't have a good spiritual self-image. And they want to make it like they have some direct hotline to God. But may I remind you what the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? If you're going to put your trust in anything, put it in the written word of God. So when you ask them, well, how do you know that God spoke to you? Was it some form of auto-suggestion or... And very often they'll say, well, you know, the, the Spirit spoke to me. Or sometimes they'll say, God gave me a vision. Listen, the Bible says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, God's Word never contradicts God's will. And so it's important that you 
Look at the context because the way God speaks today is through his written word. That's not to say that he can't prompt you to follow some dimension of his written word, but he speaks through the written word of God. And so when you hear someone say, hey, I've got a word from God, I hope they're saying that it came out of the Bible. And don't say, God gave me a revelation. That's poor theology. God isn't giving any new revelation. The canon of scriptures, we'll see when we come to the end of this book, is closed. Now, God may give you an illumination of something that he already inspired. So some Christians, again, they're sloppy and the way they approach the Bible in finding God's will. They're like the man who's just scanning through the Bible, trying to find the will of God. And as he fans through the pages with his eyes closed, he stops and he points at a verse and it says, Judas went out and hung himself. Ooh, that didn't go over well. And so he scans a little more with his eyes closed and he points again and he comes across another verse, go therefore and do likewise. <laughs> now he's really nervous and he scans again and he points a third time and he comes to another verse, what you do, do it quickly. Listen, now that's all Bible. Those are three direct verses from the Word of God, but that's plain, fast and loose with the Word of God. So this is the reason to be both accurate and helpful that I set the broad and immediate context each week. And it helps you too to learn the book so that when we're done with the Revelation, you'll be able hopefully to think your way all the way through it. Now, if you remember the divine outline, which God gave, and he didn't do that with many books, but he did it with this book, and it's so important that he did because it keeps us from getting confused. It's found in Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's the past. That's chapter 1 as he records the vision of the glorified Christ. Write the things which are. That's the present. That's chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. And the things that will take place, metatata, after these things, that's the future. So starting in chapter 4, all the way through chapter 22, we have a vision of the future. In chapters 4 and 5, we find ourselves in the very throne room of God. And we read in Revelation 4, 1, after these things, metatata, same two words, same three words in English, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So John is caught up into heaven. We call this the rapture from the Latin Bible, the catching up of the church, and he's brought in through an open door. It's what Paul calls the blessed hope when he writes to Titus. And so in chapter 4, we find ourselves in the very throne room of God. And in chapter 4, we read in chapter 4 and verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, there are three visions of the throne room of God in the Bible, one in Daniel, one in Isaiah, and one here in the Revelation. And they are all identical with one exception. Here there are 24 elders that are representative of the body of Christ. That church that has been caught up, and I hope you're a member of that church. I hope you're a member of the universal body of Christ that when Jesus comes, you'll be caught up with these 24 elders. And then we come into the fifth chapter, and we see the Lord Jesus described in two ways. One is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, 
And he takes from the right hand of the Father the seven-sealed scroll. And we saw that seven-sealed scroll was God's title deed to the earth. That which Jesus purchased will become his. In Psalm 110, that prophesies of the Messiah that his enemies will be made his footstool will become a reality. But not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is also called in the fourth chapter, the lamb slain. Because he is the one who offers himself in our place for our sin. But also as the lamb standing because he's resurrected and he is victorious and he is able to pay for that sin. So then when you come to the sixth chapter, there's a watershed of sorts. There's a real turning point because in chapters 6 through 18, we see those days described of unprecedented judgment that will come upon the earth. In chapter 6, the the scene shifts to the earth, and it really answers the question, what will be going on during the time that the church has been caught up in heaven? And he begins through three sets of judgments to describe the coming wrath that is going to take place. And they come in sevens. There's sevens all the way through the book, as this next chart reminds us. You can see here that uh, after the rapture of the church, is a short period of time. It's not revealed to us, probably weeks, days, maybe even hours before the one world leader steps on the scene and a seven-year period begins to unfold. At the start of that seven-year period, there are seven sealed judgments that come. We saw in the first four, the first uh, four representing the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the fifth seal that was broken, represented all those people who are being martyred, and then the sixth seal, some cosmic changes. And then with each of these sets of seven, between six and seven of the seals, six and seven of the trumpets, six and seven of the bowls, there is a a pause in the narrative, not in the action, but in the narrative to allow us to look back to either see what God has been doing during this time, or sometimes to give us a sneak preview to prepare us for what is yet to take place. And so between seals six and seven, you find Revelation chapter seven, where we are introduced to 144,000 Jewish men from the 12 tribes of Israel who are called of God to preach the gospel. When we come to this 14th chapter, we meet them again, and they are described as those who follow Jesus, who keep the commandments of God. Listen, if you're following Jesus, you'll do what these men did, will you not? Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you're following Christ, you're fishing for men. If you're not fishing for men, it doesn't matter what you're doing, how many Bible studies you may attend, or whether you serve in this way or that, if you're not fishing for men, you're not following Jesus. These men are fishing for men. It's the call on every born-again believer. Some are gifted in that way. All are called to share the gospel. As you go, it doesn't say do discipleship. That has been a misapplied, misunderstood verse, only, I suppose, in the last 50 years or so. 
as you go, make converts, not do discipleship, make converts, make believers. Now, you should do discipleship, and there's various expressions in which that happens. Is everyone uses their gift together, we're able to make an impact. Some are here on Sunday, and they're serving, and some are encouraging, and some are showing mercy, and some are organizing, and there are many gifts, and they all work together. That's part of the process of discipleship, one body, a variety of gifts, but we're all called to be responsible in trying to win people to Jesus. And so we see that between the sixth and seventh seal. If you remember, the seal judgments can be seen only one at a time. But when the seventh seal is open, in the seven seals are contained seven trumpets, just like in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And we've seen that when the seventh seal is open, you can see all the trumpets. And not only can you see all the trumpets, because in the seventh trumpet are seven bowls, you can see all the bowl judgments. And when they see it, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. It just takes people's breath away. And so we studied in chapters 8 and 9, those first six trumpets, and then between the sixth, the seventh and the eighth trumpet, there's once again a, a pause in the action, and that's chapters 10 through 14. And it's very important that we see what happens. That's where we are. That's the section we're in right now. Of course, the event that triggers the opening of the seventh seal that brings the trumpet and bold judgments is something we've seen called the abomination of desolation. We've studied it already. We'll look at it again. When the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt third temple that will be there on the Temple Mount, and he will make himself out to be God. And when that event happens... Look out, because the world is going to see an expression of God's wrath like they could never, ever imagine. And so this seven-year period by the prophet Daniel, by the Lord Jesus, by the apostle Paul, and by the apostle John is divided into two equal halves, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, describing these two halves of the great tribulation. So when you come to the trumpet judgments, as you look on this chart, between trumpet six and seven are found chapters 10 through 14. If you remember in the 10th chapter, we saw the angel in his little book. Then in the 11th chapter, we saw these two witnesses whom I suggested to you was Moses and Elijah. Now, I wouldn't spill blood over that. I wouldn't break fellowship over it. I could be wrong. But we know there are two witnesses who are coming. We also know, because Malachi tells us and Jesus affirms it, that Elijah is coming again before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that he is going to return. And these two men have identical witness ministries to that of Moses and Elijah, not to mention when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, they are in discussion over the coming unfolding of this kingdom with the Lord Jesus. Then, of course, there's an announcement in 1115 where the seventh trumpet is blown, and you'd think, okay, here come the bowls. But there's kind of a double parenthesis, and you don't see the actual trumpet unfold until you come to chapter 16. Chapter 15 is just an introduction to 16. It tells us the bulls are coming, and then in chapter 16, you see it. And so once that is done, then we are introduced to seven 
key persons who are functioning during the time of the Great Tribulation, as this next chart shows. We saw the woman, who is a picture of the nation of Israel. The dragon, the Bible tells us, is the devil. The male child is the Christ, the Messiah. Michael, he's called the archangel. The rest of her children, that is the Jews who believe who listen to what Jesus said, and they flee to the wilderness that they might be protected. Uh, Those are the rest of the children. Then we learned of the beast out of the sea. He's called the Antichrist. And then the second beast, the beast out of the earth called the false prophet. That brings us to where we are today. Look into your text in chapter 14. The chapter opens is where John is being given a vision. And again, once again, we see all 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And God has protected and preserved them and did not lose a single one. But then if you notice, beginning in verse 6, we saw three angels who are called by God to preach three messages that men and women might repent. Now, please understand, this is the church age, and angels aren't preaching right now. It's obvious that God is using people who've been redeemed by blood to preach the gospel during this time. And so an angel dispatches Philip to preach to an Ethiopian eunuch. An angel tells Cornelius where he can hear the gospel through the apostle Peter. But the angel doesn't tell the gospel to Cornelius. He just tells him where he can find it. And today in the history of the church, without a single exception, every time a so-called angel has preached, it hasn't been one of God's angels. It's been a demon. And so you have cults that have been started by demon angels like Mormonism and many other groups. But things change after this seven-year period begins. It's not Gentiles who are primarily sharing the gospel as it is today. It's Jews. And it's not people. God uses people, and he uses even an angel to preach the eternal gospel. And so while angels don't preach in this time frame, nonetheless, they can preach, and we find them doing that specifically. Right now, what are they doing? Well, 1 Corinthians 11.10 says they're learning. And every time we gather for worship, the Bible teaches there are angels present who are watching us worship, they are learning from us. So if you remember in verses 6 through 11, we heard the fact that these angels uh, pronounce God's statement of judgment on the earth. The first angel in verses 6 and 7 preached an eternal gospel. And literally, the Great Commission in terms of the gospel going to the whole world will be fulfilled during this time through the two witnesses, through the 144,000, through people who are saved through their ministry, And through this angel, such that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are one to the Lord Jesus. So the first angel is then finished, and as soon as he is finished, a second angel steps up. And so beginning in verse 8, if you look down in your text, the second angel appears, and he pronounces God's judgment on Babylon. Babylon is fallen. It's the obituary of Babylon, and it's what linguists call a prophetic preterite. In other words, it's written as if it has already happened. And sometimes in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New, God will put a prophecy in the past tense to assure you of the certainty of it being done. And so he just briefly introduces us again to this place called Babylon. 
Well, when we come to chapters 17 and 18, my guess is we'll probably spend six or seven messages just on those two chapters as we witness the fall of religious and commercial Babylon. And so he says, fallen, fallen, twice over to underscore its guaranteed judgment. And by the way, this is the first time in Revelation that Babylon is mentioned. And then the third angel preaches to warn the multitudes once again to escape the wrath of God. Look at verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast, the Antichrist, in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So this verse tells us about a horrible place called hell. And once again, we're just introduced to it, but he is going to expound on it in great detail as we move through the book. And let me just say parenthetically, if you're here today and you're not saved and you die lost and go to hell, it will be no one's fault but yours. Because God has provided a way of escape. The God who has set the penalty paid the penalty through a substitute. But then, of course, we come to verse 12. And what a contrast, as we studied last time. For this third angel, he's still preaching. And like any good preacher, he not only mentions God's wrath, he mentions God's grace. And so having described for us the hellish side of death, now, if you remember, in verses 12 and 13, he describes the heavenly side of death. What awaits the sinner is ghoulish. What awaits the saint is absolutely glorious. And so having described the judgment of the wicked, now he describes the demonstration of God's grace on the righteous, those who've been saved by grace. In essence, he's saying, look, you've seen the wicked ones. Now you're going to see the righteous ones. And he shows us the difference between them and those who have truly, genuinely been converted and had a birth from above. In essence, God is saying, you've seen the wicked ones. Now take a look at my children who persevere, a mark of conversion, who keep my commandments, a fruit of conversion, who die rightly related to me, to whom the Spirit of God says at their death, yes. Now, the Spirit of God, of course, speaks all the way from the Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to the last word of the Revelation. But you never hear His voice except on a couple of occasions. And here He says one word, and when we come to the last chapter, He'll say just a couple of words. But it's the Spirit of God, if you're saved, who brought you into a right relationship with the Lord. No man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so the Spirit is the one in the Godhead that the Father uses to draw you. He convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He awakened a dead heart so you could see the gospel. And then as an act of your will, you chose to believe. And the moment you believed, He made you His temple. You've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. He placed the Spirit in you. He has borne witness to your spirit, if you've been born again, that there's something different on the inside 
conversion has taken place. He's borne witness with you that you've become a child of God. He's become your deposit, your guarantee. He has sealed you for the day of redemption that what God started, he will complete. He gifts you so you can serve the body of Christ. He comforts you in hard times. He helps you in difficult circumstances. He illumines the word of God as he teaches you. And finally at death, he says, yes. And he takes you home to glory because his work is finished. To listen again to today's message titled, The Wrath of God on Earth from Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV40. And if you can help support this ministry with a one-time or recurring gift, we'd be most grateful. Just call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button using our app or online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, part two of The Wrath of God on Earth. Join us then as we search the scriptures.